Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey everybody, welcome in to a Deep Dive Thursday here on Critical Thinking. I'm Andrew Coppins, and well, uh, if you're watching on Rumble, you already know this, but uh, Pat is off today. He has a little bit of a medical uh, thing going on, and uh, we hope to have him back for the Friday Fish Fry, uh, where we give you our worst take of the week and our best take of the week we crown a brand new Richard of the week uh, we, we kind of recap everything that's been going on and have a little bit of fun uh, but today you know the drill by now it is a deep dive Thursday and if you're new here what is a deep dive Thursday it is simply this we're going to take a couple of topics and dive deep into them and with me flying solo um, you're going to hear a lot of me and that's okay hopefully hopefully you enjoy that but we are going to talk about control, and we're going to talk about it from two different perspectives today. We're going to talk about control of healthcare and control of money in ways that maybe you have not heard before. We're going to feature talk of the central bank digital currency, and we're going to talk about the World Health Organization in an article by Scott Atlas. So why don't we just dive right in to some critical thinking? And before we dive deep, deep, deep into the deep end of the pool of intellectualism and thought, um, before we do all of that, it would be good to fuel yourself up a little bit. So why not head over to coffeebrandcoffee.com, the official coffee supplier of critical thinking. Yes, that's right. Coffee brand coffee. It's just that simple. They want to focus on and feature coffee and they don't care about your politics. They just want to make good coffee for good people. So head on over there, enter the promo code critical thinking at checkout for 5% off of your purchase. And I'm telling you right now, um, the bourbon-flavored coffee is absolutely fantabulous, like unbelievably awesome. So you're going to want to check out coffeebrandcoffee.com. 
www.thepeopleshow.com. All right, so I told you we're going to dive into both the World Health Organization and central bank digital currency from the perspective of control. And that's exactly what we're about to do, because I want you to understand this. We are at one of the most basic levels of questions that we have to answer as a society. I think that we've had since the revolutionary times of the 1700s. And if you think that America was the only place in which the questions of control and autonomy and individualism or self-determination, if you think that America was the only place in which these questions were attempted to be answered, you're not a student of history, and you should be. May I recommend to you the Revolutions podcast? I think you will find it absolutely fascinating how many people attempted to and wanted to answer the exact same question that our founding fathers were attempting to answer in the mid to late 1700s and beyond, by the way, all over the globe, not just here, but in France, but in South America, in Central America, in the Caribbean. It was an absolutely fascinating time. But I thought we had settled the question of self-determination, of quote-unquote bodily autonomy or autonomy on just a basic level. I thought we had solved that. But I'm beginning to wonder if we did or if we just need reminders of the answers we've already established so that we can fight the good fight against control. As a libertarian, as a libertarian-leaning conservative, even if, if that's what you are, the simple belief is that the individual has self-determination. Now, as somebody who believes in God and somebody who believes in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, I happen to believe that we do have self-determination and self-autonomy, but that we are granted that as a God-given right, that our rights are determined from God. And that he has given us thought, speech. He has given us that curiosity, the human brain. On the flip side of that, though, throughout the Bible, throughout human history, what have we seen? Not the exercise of self-determination or freedom or however you want to put it, but the exercise of control, of power in the hands of the few, because we as human beings, if you study the Bible, if you study history, let's say you are not a believer in Christianity or in Judaism or in the Muslim faith, it is not that we recognize the sovereignty and the control that God and Jesus Christ have over us, or God and Muhammad or God have over us. 
and that we should do the will of God and our self-determination is that representation of the will of God because God wants us to be good. God wants us to prosper. God wants us to use the talents that they have or that he has given us. But the exercise of control, the exercise of authority, the exercise of the power of one over many, feudalism, monarchy, communism. We could go throughout almost every era of history and show you that the reality of humanity is what? The real history of humanity is our struggle not for control over ourselves, but control from ourselves. And what do I mean by that? We are often, often put into situations throughout history in which us as human beings crave control of others. We don't want the responsibility of self-determination, of self-autonomy. We don't want the responsibility to have to live out God's plan for ourselves. We want somebody else in control. We want somebody else to provide. We want somebody else to do those things. Instead of turning to God and asking for the signs and the answers and the the knowledge of the path forward for our own benefits and our own health and wealth and well-being, we want somebody else here on earth to do that for us. That is the reality of human history, is subjugation, control. What makes America unique and the American story unique up until this point in time has been the fact that this is the first real time in human history in which we were not interested in the control mechanisms, but in real natural rights, in real self-determination. But Andrew, what about the democracy of Athens? What about the, um, the Republican era of the Roman Empire? You are correct in, in some of those respects, but again, they all failed. And why did they all end up failing? Because people don't want and have never wanted more than they had at our revolutionary time in the revolutionary period in world history that surrounded our own American revolution, have never really wanted the responsibility that comes with those natural rights and the exercise of them and government set up to protect those rights. See, that's the rub here. You may have had some of these in other systems, but they were always set up to be a, a protagonist, if you will, um, an antagonist, I should say, to your rights. Government is always antagonistic to those natural rights. That's what makes the American experiment and the American ideal different. It was different than the French Revolution and revolutions in South America because it was focused less on government and more on the individual's and 
decentralizing that control and that power. If you look at France and what they ended up with and how quickly they went right back to the monarchy and less self-determination and more uh, control and feudalism, you, you can look throughout that type of a, a historic lens and see that. That's what makes this unique. But here we are, and this is why I wanted to lay this foundation for you over the last 10 minutes. Because here we are in the 21st century. Here we are on March 23rd, year of our Lord, 2023. And we are talking about some major issues of control and seeding not just our individual autonomy, but our national sovereignty. What do I mean by that? Well, the first example comes from the World Health Organization. And how it comes from the World Health Organization is a great article, um, an opinion article wrote, written, wrote, written in Newsweek from Scott Atlas. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute, a Stanford, a former Stanford professor. He was part of uh, the Trump attempt at triangulation from the disaster that was locked down for Evs and Anthony Fauci and excuse me, the truth register, uh, truth trademark, the science registered trademark, Lord Savior President Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Deborah Burks. An attempt to pivot, except for he never listened to Scott Atlas. But he points out in this article uh, in Newsweek, WHO, do you trust? So who do you trust? Well done on that punnage. Now, he talks about a new global pandemic accord that the WHO has drafted. And... I'm going to let you judge a little bit for yourself, but what I will say about this accord is that if you just read the basic information in it, um, like its stated goal and um, some of the bullet points that it presents up front in their accord plan, you'll get the idea that they care about national national sovereignty. They you're going to get the idea that they believe in that type of, of freedom to have healthcare and laws and whatever as you see fit. There's just a problem with it, and that problem comes from the fact that they believe in universal healthcare around the globe. The problem comes from they don't actually believe what they say when it comes to what this accord is. Now, they're calling it an accord. And we're going to get into the language used here in just a moment. But I want you to understand fully what is going on here. So, um, Scott Atlas points out in his article here in Newsweek, he points out, the WHO has drafted a new global pandemic accord before seeing anything final in what will be legally binding. Because remember, we are a member of the WHO. And we have agreed to anything that they put in place, we are legally bound by. 
So they can, he continues, what will be legally binding the U.S. ambassador to the WHO, Pamela Hamoto, on February 27th, imprudently promised, quote, the United States is committed to the pandemic accord. Now, the problem with this is that, as Scott Atlas rightly points out, this comes immediately after the exposure of yet another disgrace undermining trust in public health institutions. It turned out in it turned out the February 2020 Lancet article calling the lab origin of the SARS-CoV-2 virus a quote-unquote conspiracy theory was itself the true conspiracy, contrived behind closed doors contemporaneously with a March 2020 publication in Nature magazine and Nature.com. If that coordinated media campaign was designed to conceal malfeasance by Drs. Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci, who, as leaders of America's National Institutes of Health, reportedly sent American tax dollars to fund China's dangerous gain-of-function research and circumvent Obama administration-introduced restrictions, we may be witnessing the deadliest cover-up scandal in history. That's right, folks. The most deadly cover-up scandal in history. Okay. So, what we're saying is that we are going to pledge our sovereignty, our National sovereignty. We're going to hand over how we would like to handle any sort of pandemic response or no pandemic response or um, declaring it even a pandemic over to an organization that was hellbent on covering up origins for the last pandemic that occurred. That's where we're going with this. But Scott Atlas has more to say on what is going on here. He points out further in this uh, Newsweek article, truth seems to be prevailing, and I would agree with him because we are beginning to see the declassification of all of the information of the COVID-19 origins and all of that. But he continues, truth seems to be prevailing, but being proven right is not sufficient. And he's right there. We have a crisis of trust that threatens the credibility of all future health guidance, and that goes to the point of the Lancet and Nature articles. Americans should be concerned that the latest WHO agreement in progress, quote-unquote, is not classified as a treaty. Amen, Scott Atlas. Amen. America's treaties require congressional approval. That's key to a representative government. The public gets input into how they are governed. But executive signed <clears throat> accords circumvent the authority of the people. After all, the public has endured in this pan after all, the public has endured in this pandemic at the hands of government. Is there any doubt that health emergency powers must have full public vetting? I can't agree with him any more than I do on this very topic because this is the reality of the situation. This is the attempt of the WHO. This is the attempt of the Biden administration and, more importantly, the bureaucracies within NIH, within the CDC, the people who are at the high levels of the Department of Defense even. This is their attempt to end around, and we have seen this on not just healthcare. We have seen this on the January 6th trials. We have seen this on getting around the... Um, stated mission of the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, right? Where, oh, shoot, we, we're, 
we're fenced in by these rules and regulations, but uh, that private company over here is not. And because we like what that private company is able to do that we can't do, we're going to end round and we're going to pay that private company to do the very thing that we can't do, but we're going to pay them to get the data and the information that they have access to that would be illegal for us to have access to with the exception of this thing that's been clawed out. This is the exact same idea concept of end rounding our treaty process, end rounding congressional representative democracy. This is the end round of our ability to have a say so in how our responses to various international things happen here at home? On a basic level, I don't care whether you believe that the pandemic was uh, a, a total accident or planned or you know whatever conspiracy theory you have or what you believe as to the origins. The very simple reality is this. Our ability to critically think and our ability to act on the on the best interests of the United States of America and then further drilling down on a state level, a municipal level, on an individual level is seeded away by this accord, is seeded away by not classifying this as a treaty. But let's continue with uh, what Scott Atlas has to say here in Who Do You Trust? He continues on pointing out, despite protestations to the contrary, all signers of the pandemic accord clearly relinquish critical autonomy to the WHO. Most ominous is that WHO defines public health emergency on its own terms, giving it full leeway to determine the fundamental justification for public restrictions. We already know <clears throat> there is ambiguity within the U.S. on that definition. When you're going to invoke emergency measures, there must be clarity on the terms and time limits of that emergency. Why should any sovereign nation allow a third party to legally define and impose such a critical state? Again, Scott Atlas is pointing out what the WHO is really after. Control. Because again, in this accord, what are they looking for? They are attempting to look for the ability to universally apply rules, regulations, um, taxation. They're looking to uniformly attempt to do what? End a pandemic or, or, or look at the ability to stop pandemics from ever happening again, <clears throat> Bill Gates. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. But if they have the ability to define the terms for themselves at the WHO level, we, as the United States of America, let alone the state of Illinois or the city of Chicago or the neighborhood or the ward I live in, have the ability, or more importantly, me, myself, and I have the ability to define our terms. We just lived through, in fact, we're still, I believe, finally now out of the state of emergency in the state of Illinois. We are still operating under a state of emergency here in the United States of America. Novak Djokovic cannot come into the United States of America because of it. 
because that state of emergency from the Biden administration is continuously just pushed down the road. Gavin Newsom still, I believe, has the state of emergency in the state of California in place. I could be wrong. I think it was either February or April that 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 is supposed to go away. Will it or won't it? I don't know. But because we were not able to define the proper terms of what what actually even defines it here in America, we allowed the government officials to just willy-nilly continuously declare some sort of a state of emergency. Novak Djokovic can't come here because he doesn't have a COVID-19 vaccination that literally does nothing to prevent transmission, to prevent getting it, to prevent you from getting sick or dying from it, or literally anything. Yet, here we are. But Scott Atlas is not done here, not by a long shot. Because as he points out, the entire United States apparatus, let alone the WHO apparatus, is not interested in actual science determining these things. And you might have a case at that point. I would argue that you still don't have a case. But hey, let's grant the premise that you would have some sort of ability to not just dictate, I guess, but more importantly, have the ability to make a case that you're following science and science is driving the decisions that you're making. If it weren't for the fact that you are not following science in the first place, how much so? Well, Scott Atlas points this out. Beyond supporting China's false narratives, which the WHO has done all along, WHO disregarded evidence for guidelines on mitigation, censored its own staff for acknowledging the limits of asymptomatic spread, and erratically changed fundamental definitions like herd immunity to influence behavior. And that's the biggest thing here, is that this is an influence operation more than anything else. And lest we forget what herd immunity has almost always meant, and now the definition changes, not based off of sound evidence, right? Not based off of scientific proof or hypothesis becoming theory or fact, but just off of the whim for control. But Scott Atlas also points this out about China. In his most alarming failure of all, uh, Tedros, who is the head of the WHO, backed China's reckless lockdowns and massive human rights violations, stating, quote, the Chinese government is to be congratulated for the extraordinary measures it has taken to contain the outbreak, as Beijing used pseudoscience to justify imprisoning its citizens, you know, literally soldering their doors closed, um, pulling all of the money out of the bank, and eliminating their ability to travel about major cities. Tedros insisted that, quote, WHO continues to have confidence in China's capacity to control the outbreak until May of 2022, more than two years too late. He would, want, he would want to explain that praise, given the director general's explicit warning in March of 2020 that he had, quote, never before seen a pandemic that could be controlled. We must hope Tedros was incorrect when he said, quote, China is actually setting a new standard for outbreak response. 
absolutely right there. Now, more importantly, we also know the ignored evidence, the absolute ignored evidence that has existed since 2006, my friends. That's right, since 2006. I want you to think about this, right? Both the Trump and the Biden administrations. So regardless of whether you are left, right, libertarian, whatever, every side has gotten it wrong. Both political parties with their leaders have not followed science, but followed fear and control, that natural urge to want to control and be controlled. Because there was a classic 2006 review of pandemic data that has clearly demonstrated lockdowns were not effective and were extremely harmful, by the way. That comes from D.A. Henderson, a world-renowned scientist. Now, the alternative, targeted protection, and we have talked about this from the very beginning, the easiest way to have responded to this was to look at the most mar most dramatically affected populations, the elderly, those with pre-existing conditions that would um, you know have issues with this type of a thing, and find ways to make sure that they stay as isolated as possible during the initial outbreak of COVID-19. Because what we also know is that today, by the way, the elderly, yes, they are still the most affected, but they are not nearly as affected by the um, differing variants that have come out over time as they were to the original variant. So we can then lessen that targeted protection. We also know that lockdowns failed miserably at stopping death, right? That was the goal. We got to stop everybody from dying. And, and there's going to be 2 million people dead of COVID-19 if we didn't do this, if we didn't do that, if we didn't, except for none of it worked. None of it really slowed the rate of death. And more importantly, um, there were the projections of the death toll, even with the mitigation efforts from places like Imperial College and the IHME, or the, yeah, the IHME modeling, were proven vastly incorrect, vastly incorrect, way the hell off. And more importantly, we had the experimentation of what was going on in South Dakota and in Georgia and in Florida, right? We have the Scandinavian numbers. We have all of the information that both Pat and I, more importantly myself, prior to Pat joining, harped on and harped on and harped on and harped on over and over and over and over again. All of it in front of us. Yeah, the WHO ignored it, yet our government ignored it, whether that was the Trump administration who had Scott Atlas right in front of him or the Biden administration. But as with everything when it comes to control, as with everything that comes with the concept of where we're going with these types of things, you have to follow the money. Unless I forget to remind you, as Scott Atlas does, <clears throat> allocating authority to the WHO requires being naive about its financial backing. More than 80% of its $6.1 billion 2022-2023 budget comes via voluntary donations, often earmarked for very specific initiatives. 
For instance, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation alone is responsible for over 88% of the philanthropic donations to the WHO. That may or may not be in the best interest of any nation's citizens, especially considering the outside's legal authority of WHO agreements. Now, what do we also know about Bill Gates? He has talked about population control. He has talked about eugenics. He has purchased land to just sit there so that it cannot be farmed and cattle and this and that and every other uh, attempt at uh, control of our banking system, of our money, of our healthcare system, of our food systems. Do you think that Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is donating 88% of the philanthropic number? Do you think they're donating that just for shits and giggles? Or for their, or are they advocating for their preferred ideas, experiments to be put forth by the WHO? We can follow the money there. We absolutely can. All right, so we have this attempt at control over your health for the control over what you as an individual get to decide about your level of risk in a pandemic or outside of a pandemic, because this is just step one. Their stated goal is worldwide universal health care. That's right. Worldwide universal healthcare so that they can deliver quote unquote efficient responses to what? Shut up and jab harder, you peons. That's really what the WHO is saying here. All right. So um, we're going to move forward from this to talking about um, a very important topic. Um, and it's one that um, we need to really explore. And of course, we are talking about the topic of the bee or not the bee. Okay, so obviously we're not going to play the bee or not the bee. But um, folks, um, I, I, I can't not bring this up. I, I really can't not bring this up on the show. From notthebee.com, <clears throat> Green Bay Man gets four years in prison for selling 3D-printed guns. That's only half the story, including one that became the first known to successfully evade the TSA. Problems. Now, if you don't know anything about me, this story has to be brought up because Green Bay, Wisconsin is my hometown. I lived there for 33 out of my first 34 years of my life. So here's the story. Even now, after centuries of development and refinement, firearm technology is still evolving, and so the laws governing their usage are evolving too. <clears throat> A man was sentenced on Monday to federal prison for manufacturing and trafficking quote-unquote ghost guns out of his Green Bay home. Mitchell Guerrero, 30, was sentenced to nearly four years in prison and three years of supervised release for 3D printing the guns, which lack serial numbers, making them impossible to trace. Guerrero was creating the plastic guns in his basement. Now, 
as a libertarian, I, I fully support the idea that you should be able to do these things. But again, um, there are laws that are on the books about this. And I would advocate that the laws need to change so that this could be something. But here's the problem. When, you, when you're doing this in combination with the next part of the story, it don't matter. Because when investigators raided the man's house, they found an absolute cachet of printed firearm materials, including ammunition, magazines, and automatic conversion shear. A ton of stuff, in other words, absolutely guaranteed to make the firearm narcs really angry. And the DEA as well, because investigators found evidence that Guerrero offered to sell ghost guns and traded one for methamphetamine. That's right. He was trading guns for drugs. I mean, are you really shocked by that? Bad ideas all the way around. Authorities managed to successfully fire one of Guerrero's plastic handguns, and it also made its way through a TSA checkpoint without setting off an alarm. Now, as the Not The Bee article points out, regardless of how you feel about the right to manufacture firearms without the government's approval, there's pretty much only one way to judge a uh, only one way a judge is going to respond to this whole setup. <clears throat> Guilty. Um, yeah. Green Bay, do better. Just just please do better than than being a meth-snorting, ghost-gun-printing bunch of morons. Just please tell me that you're better than this. I, really? Just really? Okay, so now that we're going to move on from the B or not the B... We also have to talk about the second part of the control, because if they're willing to control your health care, we talked about um, how that boils down to money. You really wouldn't be surprised to know that, well, they're also attempting to control money. And hear me out on this. They already control your money. And you probably don't even know it. That's right. We're going to talk about the hot topic of the day, central bank digital currency. But we're going to break it down in a very different way here. Um, And I've got some notes that I want to get into. But um, I want to start with this. How many of you go into a bank with either cash from, let's say, a wedding or a birthday party or whatever have you? Um, selling items, or how many of you have an automatic deposit of your paycheck into a bank? Oh, like 100% of you? Okay. You see that number pull up on your app or on your bank statement, or you see the, the, um, the amount that is in deposit in your account, right? You see that. Do you believe that that money is yours? I'm going to wait. You probably think that it is, right? Except for legally speaking, no, it's not. The second that you step foot, either digitally or in person, 
the second that you step foot in the bank and make that deposit, whether it's a Also, if you're doing $250 million in a bank, what the hell are you doing? But that's neither here nor there. The overarching point in all of this is that you don't own that money anymore. That's right. That money is not yours. That money, the second that you deposit into your account, whether, again, that is your paycheck, whatever it is, that money is now owned That's right, legally owned by the bank today. That's right, right now. Now, you have a right to legally ask for your money back vis-a-vis they're going to pay it out if you make a purchase or you want to pull it out for cash from the bank or whatever have you. You, they have a legal obligation to make sure that they can do that. Now, what I also know is this. If you were to go to the bank today and ask for, let's say you've got $50,000 in deposit at that bank, or let's say you have a million dollars in, let's say, four or five accounts, right? Are you going to be able to pull that out of the bank? No, because it doesn't exist in the bank. They don't have a million dollars in the vault. They don't have $250,000 in the vault. They probably don't even have $50,000 in the vault that day. Try it once. If you ever have a massive sale of something and you have a massive deposit, maybe something over $50,000, let's say you have to go uh, deposit money from, from that day's big haul on Black Friday, right? From the business that you own. Or, you know, Small Business Saturday or Cyber Monday or whatever the hell it is, right? Go and try to deposit that cash and watch what a bank will do to you. Now, I've talked about this previously in the program, and there's a reason for it. Number one, they would love to own the cash. But number number two, it, it makes them susceptible to actual cash flow. And that's a problem for them. But you don't own your money. And let's bring it into today's news. Silicon Valley Bank, uh, First Reserve Bank, and I forget the one that's in New York off the top of my head. Um, What's the problem that they have? Illiquidity, right? And more importantly, let's say they go completely tits up And we didn't have the FDIC or the backstop that the Fed is giving, right? And that that Fed temporary banking, whatever the hell they're calling it, aka taxpayer bailout. Okay, let's say that doesn't exist. When they go bankrupt, if they file for Chapter 11, which Silicon Valley Bank has done, by the way, do you think you are entitled to your money? You probably do. You probably do. And guess what? More than most likely, you would be, in your mind, correct in that assumption. Why? Because your assumption, again, is that your money is your money and you're depositing it in the bank so that they can hold it for you. 
so that it's not sitting in a mattress or whatever have you, right? <laughs> Au contraire, mon frere. Au contraire, mon frere. You, my friend, thanks to this little thing called the UCC, otherwise known as the Uniform Commercial Code, thanks to that, they have changed not only the definition of ownership of money, but also whom is the creditor in which gets that money. You, my friend, the depositor in the bank, you who have $40,000 or let's say $4,000 sitting in that bank or $4 million sitting in that bank, you, my friend, are the last person in line to be able to get their money when these banks go insolvent. That's right, folks. How many of you even knew that these processes existed in the Uniform Commercial Code? More importantly, how many of you even knew what the Universal Commercial Code is or was? I'm going to raise my hand and say I didn't know until I did my research, until I began to look into these, you know, the buzzword CBDC, right? Central Bank Digital Currency. So I wanted you to understand something at a very, very basic level is that when they talk about control over your money, when you talk about the whether you believe this to be a conspiracy theory or this isn't going to be how this is all set up or you believe that this is a setup for you know real control over your everyday life or how far the government can or won't go. They already have all the control over your money they possibly need right now. Now, would they enact further control over your money? I don't know if they would with the system as it is currently set up because of the fiat nature of this currency. But I want you to understand ownership first and foremost. So I'm not suggesting stuff all of your money in the mattress. I am not suggesting most of those types of things. What I am suggesting is that large sums of money in banks right now is a really bad idea. I would suggest finding assets or things that will provide you true ownership. So owning gold, owning silver, owning stocks even, even though that is a piece of paper, but finding things like real estate, finding tangible things that you can put your hands on, that you can physically own, that the government cannot just on a whim take away. Now, for real estate, could they redefine who has ownership? Could they take away title and property? Yeah, in theory, but in practice, I don't know how the government does that, at least quickly, and more importantly, without compensation. And if we're going down that road, I would suggest that we have much, much broader problems and we have gone down that road of communism that I don't know if there's any real coming back from. But let's let's talk. So I want you to understand that your money is not your money currently. The problem comes in with the central bank digital, excuse me, the central bank digital currencies from this perspective. We are being groomed for further and further and further government interference and control and furtherance 
of government socialized proper behavior. This isn't like, you know, taking your religious beliefs and enacting them in life out of your own free will. This is the government's coercive nature being taken. And we can look at China. We have talked about China, how they literally just said, no, guess what? Your That, that $10,000 in your bank account, right? That is no longer yours. It is literally ours. The government owns it. Here's the deal with the current UCC, okay? The current UCC defines ownership of money with the bank, okay? The bank owns your money. You don't when you deposit it. The next step is the government having that ownership. And the first part of this is all sorts of the fuzzy goodness. And I want to play for you. How many of you have heard of this system called FedNow? Probably not many of you, but this is an attempt at ease of access to money. And what is really being attempted here, and I want you to understand this, is the attempt of the government through the UCC, through the redefinition of money, through the redefinition of ownership of money, to transfer your interaction from the line item on your bank statement to a line item with the Federal Reserve. I'm going to ask a very simple question. I'm going to play a video for you, and then I want you to think about what you just witnessed and think about the answer to this question. Have you ever had a physical interaction with the Federal Reserve in your life? I'm going to wait for that answer, but as I wait for this answer, I want you to listen to this video or watch this video. Again, make sure you're at rumble.com backslash critical thinking or you're downloading, rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. But I want you to understand what FedNow is. Today, people and businesses expect to make and receive payments at the click of a button any time of the day, every day of the year. And most expect their financial institutions to offer or support payment services that meet the speed and convenience they seek. In fact, three in four businesses and two-thirds of consumers surveyed think it's important that their bank or credit union offer faster payments. Financial institutions interested in meeting these demands can use the Federal Reserve's upcoming FedNow service to build innovative payment offerings that can help them retain and attract customers and avoid losing out to the competition. With the FedNow service launching in 2023, the time to start preparing is now. What can financial institutions do to get ready? A bank or credit union should first get a sense of the demands and trends in the market. Let's take a look at how one financial institution might do this. Meet Jill, the CEO of Community Bank. Jill keeps a close eye on Community Bank's customer retention rates. She was surprised to see new research showing that nearly two-thirds of businesses and one-third of consumers indicated they would factor access to faster payments into future decisions on whether to switch financial institutions. Jill and her team looked at their own customer transactions and discovered an increasing number of customers moving funds to alternative payment services, such as digital wallets and mobile payment apps. This corresponded with a noticeable decline in customers' deposits and accounts at Community Bank. 
they knew they had to take action. Jill and team reviewed FedNow education tools and resources to understand how the service will work and how to prepare for it. They also learned about instant payment use cases, including account-to-account -account transfers, bill pay, and person-to-person -person transactions. These resources sparked ideas for solutions they could create using their internal technology or working with third-party providers to leverage the FedNow infrastructure. Next. Okay. So I think you get the gist of this, right? They're attempting to solve what problem? The bank, quote unquote, having the access to your money. Because again, in the UCC code that exists today, and we're going to talk more about the UCC code in a, in a little bit here because it's going to be shocking to you some of this information. But the FedNow system is attempting to basically become what? The, the banking or the bank's version of Zelle or PayPal or uh, some of these other institutions that exist, Venmo, for instance. This is really what they're attempting to do is get that instantaneous um, payroll, that instantaneous uh, payment system, peer-to-peer, business-to-business, all the things that exist in the ecosystem currently. But this is an attempt to do what? Just Make it easier so that you can interact with the Fed who provides what? The currency and the money, right? Here's the problem. This wouldn't just be the stopping point of all of it. Because I can make a suggestion that this might be helpful in some respects because a lot of our banking infrastructure and um, architecture, if you will, right? It, it, it's makeup is archaic. It really is. If you know anything about how payments are processed, if you know anything about um, fraud, if you know anything about how the system or systems do or don't interact with each other, you would understand. So for instance, why does it take three to five days for a refund? Why does it take this information? Why does it take this long or that long? Or, or this bank has this, but this bank doesn't have it. It's because the structures and the infrastructure are really difficult to work with and talk and interact with. And this is what? The Fed now attempt to do what? Solve that problem. Sort of, kind of. Here's the thing, though. It is not just about bank to bank or business to business. This would also step into peer to peer. This would step into the relationship between you and your bank of deposit. Meaning, for the first time in the history of this country, you as an individual would necessarily be interacting with directly the Federal Reserve. That's right. You would be interacting with the Federal bleeping Reserve on this. Now, the uh, excuse me, the Uniform Commercial Code. This is the how do we get to the Fed now moment. The Universal Commercial Code has not only been changed to make sure that your money is not your money the second it gets deposited into the bank. That's actually been there for quite some time, probably about 20 years, by the way. But the uni uh, Uniform Commercial Code is and has been set up since the 50s to basically allow um, intrastate or interstate commerce to work more efficiently. 
um, you know, kind of helping with the differences in commercial codes that would have existed in different states um, throughout this country, hence universal. And many states use the universal commercial code because it is much easier, and more importantly, it makes um, the transfer of money, um, commerce easier. It makes everything that we do in our lives easier. <coughs> but it has transformed from the ability to allow us to conduct business on a more efficient level into a mechanism for control. And it is because now, today, that stepping stone of Fed now, coming in July of this year, by the way, has the groundwork laid for it by the changing of the uniform commercial code. And I'm gonna I'm gonna show you this because I think you're going to be absolutely shocked. But 20, count them, 20 states currently have legislation and more importantly, all 50 states will eventually have this type of legislation in front of it. But 20 states are currently in the process of updating the Uniform Commercial Code within their state. Okay, And it is all about changing the definition of money. That's right. There is a definition of money in the Uniform Commercial Code. That definition is pretty universally understood to mean the currency, to mean you know the cash, the coinage, right? All of that sort of stuff. Now, what we also know today about money is that Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever have you, that that uh, digital currency that um, that is decentralized, right? Well, you can accept that as payment at business. You can accept that online. You can accept it all sorts of different ways. We also know that banks have done what? They have decided to not accept certain payments from certain places, uh, certain types of businesses. They've created codes and all of those things that will define what you can and cannot deposit into the account. And why? Because they own your money. And they don't want money from assets that are riskier in nature, if you will. That's how they term it. Ever try depositing money into your bank directly from, let's say, I don't know, your FanDuel account if you're better, right? Or whatever betting app you use. Have you ever tried doing that? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. No, 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 no. You, you do not go collect your money. And then get to just directly deposit it. Nope. They've decided your money is that money is no good, even though you took the money to deposit into that. Do you see the problem that exists there? Okay. So you have to go through and roundabout to a third party that basically cleans and, and washes the money, if you will, right? Let's say it's PayPal or or another system, and then PayPal is talking to your bank. And your bank says PayPal is cool. So your money gets deposited a third roundabout way. But the change of the definition of money is going to be vitally important. And of the 20 states, by the way, that currently are looking at this, many of them are Republican red states, red as red can get, like South Dakota. 
This comes from Cointelegraph. <clears throat> On March 2nd of this year, proposed South Dakota amendment to UCC would prohibit cryptocurrencies, but not CBDC. Again, again, that central bank digital currency. From the article authored by Derek Anderson, the 117-page amendment introduced into the State House of Representatives by Republican Mike Stevens defines money as a, quote, medium of exchange that is currently authorized or adopted by a domestic or foreign government, a.k.a. the fiat currency. He continues, the term includes a monetary unit of account established by an intergovernmental organization or by agreement between two or more countries. The bill continues, by the way, quote, the term does not include an electronic record that is a medium of exchange recorded and transferable in a system that existed and operated for the medium of exchange before the medium of exchange was authorized or adopted by the government. So in other way, in other terms, if you're running a, a digital currency and it's run on blockchain or anything else, folks, mm -mm, nope. You, this is not money. But it continues. The article continues. Notably, CBDC falls within the proposed definition of money, unlike cryptocurrency. And it received a sharp reaction from the head of the conservative state Freedom Caucus uh, network, Andy Roth. Again, I want you to understand this. The term does not include an electronic record that is a medium of exchange recorded and transferable in a system that existed and operated for the medium of exchange before the medium of exchange was authorized or adopted by the government. Again, money is going to be defined under the UCC in the state of South Dakota should this 117-page amendment to the UCC go through as, quote, a medium of exchange that is currently authorized or adopted by a domestic or foreign government, including monetary units of account established by an intergovernmental organization or by agreement by between two or more countries. So, in other words, you wanting to go ahead and look at Bitcoin, that you know, $100 deposit that you made 10, 15 years ago that turned into a couple million dollars doesn't count as money anymore. It would, you would not be able to transact vis-a-vis -vis the universal uh the Uniform Commercial Code in the state of South Dakota in 19 other states, you would no longer, it would have net, it would have no value, period, amen, because you would never be able to transact, period, amen, in that currency. Because it's not money, according to the definition of the Uniform Commercial Code in the state of South Dakota in 19 other states, and soon to be coming to a state near you if it is not already down the pipeline. I want you to think about that. They're updating the code to lay the groundwork in red states, Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota, Arkansas, Texas even, and many other states. Why are they doing this? They are literally opening the door and telling the Federal Reserve and the government, go ahead with your central bank digital currency. 
But I also want you to understand this about CBDC. The goal here, with the change of the Uniform Commercial Code, is to be able to use that UCC to do what? When and if, I, I firmly believe it's a matter of when at this point because we're seeing this in red states, when that digital currency begins to exist. And I also think it's going to exist because we might see this banking collapse get worse and worse and worse. So how do you save it? How? How? Well, the government's going to be your answer and your savior, right? Because again, control. We love control. We love people solving the problem for us instead of us digging in and solving it for ourselves. Here comes the shining knight, the Federal Reserve. There you go. Okay. But it's going to become something that will be necessarily programmable, also trackable. Because I have a question for you. If this is digital currency, you cannot just walk outside of your home with a digital wallet, right? You, you could do it on your phone currently, right? You could have a digital wallet in which you could then go and make that payment. Yeah, sure. But there's no physical money, right? It's not like you can go pull the money out of the bank and they're going to give you 20 bucks of currency, right? Cold, hard cash. That's not how a digital currency is going to work. So that means that the Federal Reserve either holds your account or it is going to authorize Bank of America or Chase or Wells Fargo or whomever, right, to hold the account. But the account is not in your ownership. It's going to be in the ownership of the Federal Reserve. Okay. I want you to think about that. It's going to be held by the account holder. It is going to be owned by the account holder because already our money is in that type of a system. The account holder, aka the bank, owns your money when you deposit it. it this part of the system already exists. You just don't have a direct interaction with the Fed. But more importantly, when that digital currency gets enacted, when that roadmap or that, that basic line has been put into almost every UCC, right, across this country, what's going to be able to happen? They're going to be able to control the money. They're going to be able to use it. Not at your whim, not as you see fit, but as the government sees fit. See, the account holder is the Federal Reserve. Or it's Wells Fargo, but Wells Fargo is going to be bound by the rules of the Federal Reserve. Now, I would suggest cutting the head of the snake off like the Federal Reserve is how you actually accomplish getting rid of this concept. Look, I'm not against digital currency in any way, shape, or form. I'm against the central bank deciding that for us. Why? Because then you have no control. You don't own anything at that point in time. Oh, you want to get 
a mortgage. Oh, you you don't qualify because you don't have the proper social credit score um, according to your banking activity. Wait, what? But but we have rules and regulations around what qualifies for a uh, no, it's not just going to be your monetary situation. It's going to be, uh, do, do you speak the right political ease? And I'm not saying that that's going to happen overnight. But what I am saying is that the foundational transformation of the definition of money allows for it to happen. And once you open the door a crack, the federal government, and more importantly, the Federal Reserve, will kick that door in. ESG, international economic control. Oh, you want to trade money or you want to go travel to Canada? You want to go travel to Europe? It's not going to be about your passport. It's about um, are you doing the right thing so that you can have access to your money so that you can guarantee that you could travel? Or it could even be as something as simple as um, we, we see that you filled up on gas uh, three times this week. Um, you're traveling too much, so no thank you. Or you, you've you used too much of the electricity to fuel your vehicle, your EV. You know, we, we just can't allow you to continue to use the, the finite resources at that level. So your money, your digital wallet, no good here. I want you to think about this because I am not suggesting that the that this will happen overnight. But what happens if we see what I think could happen here in that we end up with an economic collapse that is worse than the Great Depression? You don't think the government is going to exercise more control and and watch as states just cede more and more control and lay the groundwork for something like this. You know what? We're we're going to give you an allowance, right? That's how they're going to set this up. If we see this economic collapse on a broad broad scale. But it is not about the economics, it's about the political scales. Because this is a fully programmable, a fully trackable currency. And you're going to have no choice but to interact with it. And what if you run afoul of either the left or the right? Having this level of control in the hands of so few people, in the hands of an unelected group like the Fed, is insane. Watch what happens in Venezuela, what is happening in Venezuela. Watch what's going on in China with their central bank digital currency. Tow the political line. Tow the social line, right? Tow it or else. And here's a fine example of this. For those who, well, the right would never. Oh, um, you want to get an abortion in a state that has allowed abortion after Roe versus Wade? Um, yeah, sorry, we don't allow those types of transactions. Oh, you want to use that to, oh, you, you, you've you deposited too much 
over the last few months into your uh, gambling account. Or, ooh, you went to a nightclub and we're a, you know, really strict fundamentalist group, <clears throat> Footloose. We don't allow, we don't like dancing. So mm, those types of transactions in our state, nope. It can happen on either side. Ah, uh, the environmental side, uh, this side or that side. Individual autonomy over how you spend money and what you invest in. And more importantly than that for me is the ingenuity and innovation that has driven this country over its entire existence is gone. There is no incentive to do so. There is literally none. The government owns your ass if this happens. And it already kind of does. You just don't know it. And with that, folks, I hope you have a great rest of your Thursday. Please be smart, be safe, be kind. Make sure you eat all of your meals today. Make sure you control your money as much as you possibly can. As always, Matthew 547. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.